Hello and welcome to the Genesis podcast, the official podcast for East London's best and brightest indie cinema, Genesis. With lockdown lifted, Genesis is open for business once more. Additional safety and hygiene measures are in place. And if you want to learn more about these, visit the Genesis website, www.genesiscinema.co.uk. I'm Matt Williams and joining me as ever is someone who needs no introduction. The mando to my baby Yoda. It is, of course, Nikki Alexandru. Hello. Hello. I like that introduction. (laughs) Yeah, I was trying to be baby Yoda. Well, I wasn't sure how you'd feel about it because I was thinking (laughs) you could be the like Steve Trevor to my Diana Prince. (laughs) I feel like we have to reverse roles, you and I. You're in charge and I'm the idiot that follows you around. Coming up on the podcast this week, we review Mank, David Fincher's new film that dropped on Netflix on Friday and is showing at Genesis Cinema, and Mark Rainey's Black Bottom with Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman. Plus, we'll be giving you the lowdown on forthcoming screenings at Genesis. Don't forget to give us a follow at Genesis Podcast and at Genesis Cinema on Twitter and Instagram. You can also email us at podcast at genesis-cinema.co.uk if you have any comments, feedback, love notes, anything you want to send us. <laughs> I'd be nice if we got some love notes. Even my mum wouldn't send us a love note. If she I, hears this and sends me a love note, then that would be great. But We, I str- we struggle for a Google review, let alone a love note. So, <laughs> you know, I don't think, I don't think that's going to happen. So first up, we've got some movie news. Of course, this week, pretty much all the headlines have been about Warner Brothers' decision to dump, essentially, their entire 2021 film schedule onto their fledgling streaming service, HBO Max. I thought Not- you were just quoting Christopher Nolan. I, do you feel like the same about it? Do you think he's it's a fledgling... I think it has something like 8 million subscribers, which compared to Netflix and all the other streaming services is, is minute. I think what has shocked me about this this news is just how much of a cynical corporate decision it was without discussing it with the artists and filmmakers who work for your studio. So this is where Christopher Nolan has come in. So the director of obviously the Batman trilogy and Tenet has criticized Warner Brothers over the plans to release major movies on the streaming service. So titles such as Dune, Matrix 4 and The Suicide Squad will now premiere simultaneously on the streaming site and in US cinemas next year. The uh, CEO of Warner Media Studios and Warner Brothers Film Studio Chairman Toby Emmerich called the heads of the major agencies, so I'm guessing the talent agencies, to drop the bombshell. Uh, They said Warner's are going to be delivering its entire 17 film slate major releases in 2021 onto HBO Max. The thing that's really surprised everybody is that they just didn't reach out to the filmmakers whose films are now going to be on a streaming platform. Obviously, it comes in response to the pandemic, but it's mm. also been viewed as a, a further blow to cinema. I mean, Christopher Nolan has said that he, he he's in disbelief. And he just said it's about the fact that they didn't discuss it. They didn't tell anybody. Lin-Manuel Miranda's film In the Heights, the director of that had basically they'd shopped the project around to many platforms and then opted with Warner Brothers. And then they didn't even tell them that they're going to just put it on HBO Max. The same with the new Godzilla movie, Suicide Squad. Apparently, James Gunn is really unhappy that they're doing it. Denis Villeneuve, of course. I mean, you know, June, even based on the trailer, you can see it needs to be seen on a big screen. Yeah. And this is, I think, what you just, like, like, like you just said, this is where Christopher Nolan has been critical, not just only of the decision, but also of the platform itself, kind of saying that you, like you said, it's it's fledgling and it's dumping of this material onto HBO Max and therefore sort of cheapening the product in a way, because these people would have been working on films for years 
potentially like decades even like writing getting things cast and shopped around that takes a long time so it's just kind of a bit of a blow they're disbelieving the power of cinema to come back so so soon like they've announced this you know haven't we haven't even finished 2020 yet and you know in Christopher Nolan points to the fact that we're gonna we're having a vaccine that's you know pretty much ready to go or is ready to go in the UK and and so he thinks you know they need to should have held back on that decision a bit and not necessarily announced it so soon without yeah talking to the artists and also maybe like seeing how things pick up at the same time I feel like this is where the future of of movie releases is going anyway COVID aside I think more and more people are choosing to watch things at home or or can't go out plenty of people who live don't live near enough to a cinema or you know don't have access easy access to a cinema for whatever reason and so viewing at home is a is a preferable decision and so I think I don't know I think I kind of think that this is the future anyway without Covid I think this is where street like distribution was heading like simultaneous release you know Netflix has been doing it for a little while or you know very close if they do like a week in cinemas or two weeks in cinemas it will have a detrimental impact on the production of movies now because the advent of tentpole movies and and the Marvel universe and all these superhero films budgets have become astronomical I mean for example Wonder Woman 1984 is a 200 million dollar project before marketing and also Warner Brothers was so keen to get more than one sequel from Patty Jenkins Gal Gadot or the team that they paid them in advance for the third film as well so they've already shelled out millions in advance of the film even being made. So the problem that you have with the decision to move quite a lot of these films onto the streaming platforms is that it is definitely a cynical corporate ploy to avoid potentially bad box office while also boosting flagging subscriptions of their streaming service. So it's basically just offsetting one part of the business to improve another part. And I think the other issue is as well is that as soon as the films are available on a streaming platform, you're also making it available for high quality versions to be pirated almost mm. immediately. So that is, so it's not going to, people in the UK, for example, will be able to pirate mm. and, and internationally will be able to pirate this based on it being available in the US. We don't have HBO Max. People who pirate it here aren't going to then pay to download it on Amazon or go and see it in the cinema if they've already seen it. I think it will have a really negative impact on cinematic releases. Whereas what you were saying about Netflix was that those two worlds was slightly coexisting and you know you mm. could still you could still go and see the big films in the cinemas that were being released by the studios or great independent cinema and still get some great content on Netflix as well but now it's kind of limiting that feel by Warner's making that decision they're kind of suggesting to other studios that this is the way to go I see what you're saying I think I just feel like it's it's there needs to be a happy medium there needs to be a way of streaming services and cinematic releases to kind of coexist whether that's simultaneously or not I think this is only happening I mean we can't get HBO Max like you said I mean you make a good point about pirating although that again just needs more crackdown and I feel like that's something that like governments are trying to do more like crackdown on pirating higher fines to make it like less enticing people to do and so hopefully you've got the big box offices of China and the UK and other places in the in the in the world that can still boost because I think the problem though because like you're saying with the big budgets the problem with if anything they're shooting themselves in the foot by putting it on H 
on HBO Max because they're probably not going to make the money back. Mulan didn't make its money back. And then, you know, and but then with Tenet, they tried, they obviously released that probably too soon. And I don't think that's made its money back anywhere near. And that was obviously only cinema release. And that was supposed to be like the film to save cinema this year, but it hasn't made its money back. At the moment with the pandemic, the best thing they can do is try and make something back by putting it on streaming services. I do kind of think they put the cart before the horse by saying like everything in 2021 is going to be simultaneous because that just seems a bit much and not really believing in the power of like audiences to go back to the cinemas. There's so few options to go to theatres because of the pandemic and it's not getting any better, not anytime soon. And, you know, with the rollout of the vaccine and everything, that's going to take a long time to stabilise areas. So I guess they are making that decision that maybe a boost in subscriptions on HBO Max will offset some of the losses from the budgets of these big films that that won't have an opportunity to make their money back. I don't know. It's, 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 it's also interesting that Christopher Nolan is the most vocal of this because his film's already been out. Don't even know... Mm. With June, I mean, obviously that's a labour of love and it's a huge production. You would think that he would maybe be a bit more vocal about it because that demands to be seen on a big screen, really. And I think the experience probably won't be the same. But then, you know, ultimately you are still putting your film out there and you're still getting it seen. So I don't know, it's a, it's a tricky one. It, feel, it does feel like the way they've gone about it is the issue. It's the fact that they didn't discuss it or let the artists know directly, the people that work for them. And the people that have, you know, made these movies for them, that this was going to happen. I think that's where people feel disgruntled, you know, that it wasn't even a consultation. It just happened. And it feels very much like it was a Wall Street decision rather than a creative one. Yeah, I agree. I feel like it could have been something that was a decision that was made after seeing how things go with Wonder Woman 1984 and, you know, discussing with creators to see what they feel comfortable with. So now on to new releases this week at Genesis. And first up, we're talking about George Clooney's latest directorial venture, The Midnight Sky, which will also be available on Netflix from the 23rd of December, but you can catch it in cinemas before then. George Clooney previously, obviously a big actor, but he has directed Monuments Men, The Ides of March, and more recently Suburbicon, which wasn't brilliant. And I've seen early notices of this not getting the best reviews. It's based on a screenplay by Mark L. Smith, which is an adaptation of Lily Brooks Dalton's acclaimed novel, which is called Good Morning Midnight, which was published in 2016. It stars George Clooney as Augustine, as well as Felicity Jones as a character called Sully, David Oyelowo, Tiffany Boone, and Kyle Chandler also in the cast. And the story is a post-apocalyptic tale following Augustine, who is a lonely scientist in the Arctic, and he is racing to stop Sully and her fellow astronauts from returning home to a mysterious global catastrophe. Um, So filming of this began last year, 2019, and wrapped early February 2020. They filmed in a 50-mile-per-hour blizzard, with temperatures at 40 below zero. And uh, for this role, Clooney lost over 25 pounds. I feel like they always bring this up, like, oh, someone lost. It's usually like such a big deal when a man loses 25 pounds, but I feel like women are losing and putting on weight for roles left, right and centre and no one back well, as Tina Fey and Amy Poehler said at the Golden Globes, mm. you know, I lost 25 pounds and that's called being a woman in a movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I think she was comparing it to Matthew McConaughey's celebrated weight loss for Dallas Buyers Club. And she was like, great achievement. But, you know, we have to do that every single time. Exactly. Mark L. Smith, who's the screenwriter, also wrote The Revenant. So there's been a few comparisons between the two movies. And George Clooney himself has kind of billed it as Gravity meets The Revenant. 
and he's learned he said he learned a lot from the filming of gravity in terms of how to film the shots in space and like the idea that once you're in space there is no such thing as like left right up and down and so he took that into consideration when filming the space scenes come in ether this is barbo observatory are you receiving this is anyone out there This is Ether. Does any one copy? We're not receiving anything. That puts our last contact with Mission Control at three weeks. Why is it so quiet? That's Ether. It's a spaceship that we hoped would be our future. I have to warn them about the conditions on Earth. I don't know all the details. It started with a mistake. There is an antenna that's stronger than ours. We get to that antenna, they'll hear us. Take a deep breath. In our galaxy alone, there are billions of stars. At least one of them has the potential to support life. thinking a lot about time. Why one person lives a lifetime and another only gets a few years? We made a promise to our families. You want to be an explorer? Ah, Cut to my voice! But while you're doing all that, your own life is just slipping away. That's why I have to contact them. Before it's too late. Also out this week is Dreamland, which stars Finn Cole from Animal Kingdom. If you watch that on Amazon, it's a great series. Margot Robbie, Travis Fimmel, and Kerry Condon. Uh, it's set amid the dust storms and economic depression of Dust Bowl era Oklahoma. Eugene Evans, played by Finn Cole, finds his family farm on the brink of foreclosure. Discovering fugitive bank robber Alison Wells, played by Robbie, hiding in a small town, he is torn between claiming the bounty on her head and his growing attraction to the seductive criminal. Uh, I've seen a trailer for this. A classic and- Bonnie and Clyde type... Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting choice for Margot Robbie. Obviously, she's the most well-known in this cast. Uh, Finn Cole is very good, though. I do think he's great. He's he's really good in Animal Kingdom. And the trailer makes it look very Bonnie and Clyde-esque. But the reviews have been a bit mixed and have said that it doesn't quite live up to the premise. But, I mean, it's just great to see movies being released. And I'm sure it's not awful. (laughs) So go go and see it at Genesis if you fancy a night out. There's something cursed about this land. Our family moved west on a promise. A promise that now looked rotten. There's no room for boys in this family anymore. And no one warned my brother about what can happen when you dream about destiny. That's how Allison Wells entered this story. <laughs> the thief and murderer, Allison Wells sent five human souls to heaven. If you see this woman, do not confront her. You okay? 
somebody. It's gonna pay me 20,000 to get them to Mexico. Can you even imagine that much money? We gotta get all the farms and we gotta search. I need to get out of here. They're hunting me. You found her, ain't you? The Wells lady. It's complicated. You know what the worst part of dying is, kid? Is being forgotten. It's not safe me being here. Or for any of us for that matter. I won't be another victim of their lies. Scared ass. Also out at Genesis at the moment and on Netflix is David Fincher's latest. It's called Mank. It's written by his late father, Jack Fincher. The film stars Gary Oldman, Amanda Seyfried, Charles Dance, Lily Collins and Arliss Howard. It's set in 1930s Hollywood and it's about how um, it's reevaluated really through the eyes of scathing social critic and alcoholic screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz as he races to finish the screenplay of Citizen Kane. The film is clearly a labour of love for David Fincher because the script was written by, as I mentioned, his late father, Jack, before the director made Alien 3. And I think he was trying to get it into production in the 90s, but it never happened. I think the idea of a a film about 1930s Hollywood in black and white was probably not really um, something that the studios found appealing back then. What Finch has crafted is, to my mind, an engrossing portrait that examines the confluence of film and politics, alcoholism, mad egos, media manipulation, a bit of Hollywood folklore, squandered talent, and I think attempting to sort of cling to your integrity while the real threat of being blacklisted by the people who pay you very handsomely for your work is sort of looming. What I say is Mank isn't just... It isn't just a sumptuous nostalgic trip because it slowly reveals parallels with contemporary politics as it goes along. There's a scene in particular where Manx's German nurse refuses to throw out his booze when his because he's got a personal secretary played uh, by Lily Collins called Rita, and she's trying to sort of control Mank finishing the screenplay. And so they're trying to stop him from boozing and being distracted. But in this exchange between Rita and, and his nurse, she reveals that Mank helped her entire village escape Germany and fascism. Uh, in actuality, Mankiewicz didn't save a whole village, but in the 1930s, he did quietly sponsor German refugees who were looking to escape Hitler, and he helped them find work. And uh, that was according to the biography, The Brothers Mankiewicz. In 1933, Mankiewicz wrote and attempted to make the anti-Nazi film The Mad Dog of Europe, which included a villain named Adolf Mittler. It was his attempt to awaken the American public to the horrors of fascism and Nazism. And that same decade, the Nazi Minister of Culture at the time, Joseph Goebbels, banned anything written by Mankiewicz unless his name was removed from the on-screen credits. To be honest with me, like at the start of the film, I thought this is going to be technically gorgeous and just like amazing to to look at. Very much a film buff's dream because of how authentic it feels and the story and just the sort of lifting of the veil of the making and the writing of one of the most legendary films ever made. But it's from that scene, that exchange between the two women, that the film shifts gear because you start to see Mank in a completely different light and it adds weight to his story and what drives him. The film then sort of cleverly shifts back and forth in time and it fully realises Mank's motivation. We learn about his odd but his endearing friendship with actress Marion Davis, who was the inspiration for Susan Alexander in Kane. I'd say a dazzling Amanda Seyfried plays Davis with such skill. On the surface, she's a Hollywood starlet playing the game and pandering to the powerful men while aching for intellectual stimulation where she, you know, she finds that with Mank. And I'd say... Zyfried not only holds her own with Oldman, she is the film's ace in the hole. She's so compelling 
and it's such a fully realized star performance that you're completely engaged with it whenever she's on screen. So I say why it's sprawling and sometimes it, it does border on being a little bit dull at times. It's never less than technically flawless um, with Finch's attention to detail on display in every glorious frame. I thought it was great. I thought it had so much more depth than I expected. I think the way they weave what's going on and the political landscape now with what was happening back then and how much hasn't changed is really fascinating and it really holds your attention. And Gary Oldman immerses himself. And, you know, sometimes he can teeter on the edge of parodying a character and being a bit too mannered but in this he's really authentic and he just you really come to feel a, an affinity for Mank, and so you're willing to kind of go on this journey with him um everybody in the cast is great and i just thought it was great and, and also there's there's a killer dinner party scene at the end of the film that is as excruciatingly awkward as you would hope when all of these powerful egos and opinions clash um it's really really good i i, I enjoyed it a lot Mank, it's Orson Welles. Of course it is. I think it's time we talk. What is it the writer says? Tell the story you know. Hello, everyone. Make yourself to home, Mr. Mankowitz, or shall I call you Herman? Please, call me Mank. 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 This is Herman Mankowitz, but we're to call him Mank. Mankowitz? Herman Mankiewicz, New York playwright and drama critic, turned humble screenwriter, Mr. Hearst. This is a business where the buyer gets nothing for his money but a memory. What he bought still belongs to the man who sold it. That's the real magic of the movies. Thunder, lightning, blood, fire, religion. Help! Someone save me! All in one film. That's director proof. That's why I always want Mank around. I hear you're hunting dangerous game. God bless William Randolph Hearst. Ready and willing to hunt the great white whale? Just call me Ahab. Do come in. At this rate, you will never finish. You said 90 days. Well, said 60. I'm doing the best I can. I've put up with your suicidal drinking, your compulsive gambling, your silly platonic affairs. You owe me, Herman. Who do you think you are? You're nothing but a court jester. What I want to know is why you think of it. It's a bit of a jumble, the collection of fragments that leap around in time like Mexican jumping beans. Welcome to my mind, old sock. Him, I get. But what did Marion ever do to deserve it's this? It's not her. Not all characters are headliners. Some are secondary. You pick a fight with Willie. You are finished. Mayor can't save you. Nobody can. Especially the boy genius from New York. I removed any distraction, eliminated every excuse. Your family, your cronies, liquor. I gave you a second chance. You cannot capture a man's entire life in two hours. All you can hope is to leave the impression of one. Why Hurst? Outside his own blonde Betty Boop, you're always his favorite dinner partner. Are you familiar with the parable of the organ grinder's monkey? <laughs> also out this week, which is currently showing at Genesis and will be on Netflix from the 11th of December, is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. I think most notable for the fact that it is Chadwick Boseman's final film before he sadly passed away earlier this year. And the cast is Viola Davis, who plays Ma Rainey, who is known as the Mother of Soul. And Chadwick Boseman plays her young upstart. Well, not that young. 
youngish, <laughs> younger than the rest of the band, like kind of young um, upstart trumpet player called Levy, who wants to put his own band together, kind of has some ideas about where he sees the music going, is constantly writing his own arrangements for her songs and sort of stepping on her toes slightly, but she very much knows how to put him back in his place because it's very much Ma Rainey's show and she will not let anyone push her around, including the white studio runners and her manager who she she uses her power, which is that she knows that she makes them money and that is the one shred of power that she holds on to. Because this is set in 1927 Chicago. It's all uh, set around one recording session um, in a studio in like on, on a very hot day. So you have the, the band arriving, played by Glyn Terman, uh, Coleman, Domingo and Michael Potts. And, you know, they've been in the game a long time. They know what to do. They've just come in. They're brilliant at their craft. They're great musicians. And then they've got the kind of younger Chadwick Boseman who wants to put his own stamp on things, you know, wants to do his own arrangements of things and kind of thinks that he's running the show or wants to be at least running the show. There's a lot of discussions around race in this and it's uh, it's based on the play by August Wilson who also wrote Fences and this is actually executive produced by Denzel Washington who obviously brought Fences to the screen. And so it has some of the same pitfalls as fences uh in terms of it does feel very stagey at points like there you know we're very much in one setting and so you you can tell that we're watching a play in terms of the way the actors converse with each other but that's not to take away from the enjoyment of the film because the performances are incredible like there are some really amazing monologues in this not not just and Chadwick Boseman is is brilliant he just goes from he goes from like this energetic and hyped up young man with you know he's very excited about his new pair of shoes to this very sad soulful person who expresses a traumatic situation from his past and which kind of explains some of his behaviors and there's also like a great i mean obviously a great performance from viola davis who really does completely blend into this role like I didn't even really realize I was watching her like we talk about weight gain I think she had to gain quite a lot of weight for this role and she's wearing like heavy makeup very much in keeping with Ma Rainey who did wear a lot like I've seen pictures of her she was wearing always wearing quite a lot of like caked on makeup and she really she's definitely the captain of this of this film I think she she does a fantastic job and they play off they play off really well from each other I think I wanted the tensions between the two of them as well come from the fact that uh, Ma Rainey is at this recording studio with her her girlfriend or at least the woman that she's sleeping with who also has an eye on uh, Levy and so the tensions between Ma Rainey and Levy are not just musical they're also sexual and I wanted a little bit more from that I wanted them to butt heads on that side of things a little bit more but at the same time I did quite like the fact that even though the characters are clearly uncomfortable with the fact that she's in a same-sex relationship it's not ever it's not part of the story it's kind of just there underneath it's it's not like the main arc that it's focused on and I quite liked that, that it was just you know part of it and you know it's not something that she's criticized for it's just something that is part of her her life and although you kind of get the side eye of the characters no one ever out and out kind of really criticizes her about it or or behind her back so yeah I really enjoyed it I, I thought it was captivating and the performances 
themselves were the thing that really held me. The only, yeah, the only down point I think was it at times it did feel a little bit stagey. And I did find the final scene, whilst I can see how that would work on on stage, perhaps I feel like it came kind of came out of nowhere. Yeah, I was a little bit like, oh, I'm not really sure where that came from or, or why it kind of ended like that. I feel like tensions came to a head, but not in the way you were quite expecting. And yeah, I just didn't quite. It didn't quite sit right for me, the, the final the final scene, but otherwise I thought like a brilliant film and I would definitely recommend watching it. A one, a two, a you know what to do. This would be an empty world without the blues. I try to take that emptiness and fill it up with something. They want to call me Mother Blues. That's all right with me. It don't hurt none. <laughs> Red out south and Where's the, uh, the horn player? I got a friend. Come on, Levy. You rehearse like everybody else. I'm going to get me a band and make me some records. I know how to play real music, not this jug band shit. You call that playing music? I know what I'm doing. Go on and fire me. I don't care. When I got there, they began to say. That's to get the people's attention. That's when you and Slow Drag come in with the rhythm part. Me and Cutler play on the break. Levy, the sooner you understand it, and what you say is what my say to count. <laughs> we'll be ready to go in 15 minutes. We'll be ready to go, and Madam says we're ready to go, and that's the way it go around here. Records are gonna be hits. Please come home to me. Every colored man in the world got to do his part. I'm gonna tell the white man just what he can do. They don't care nothing about me. All they want is my voice. About them songs I give you. They're not the right songs. That'll take them off your hands for you. I got my time coming to me. Hey. You don't know nothing about what kind of blood I got, what kind of heart I got beat here. So we are also going to review the next in the Small Axe series by Steve McQueen, which are all currently streaming on iPlayer. So we previously talked about Mangrove, Lovers Rock, Red, White and Blue. And this is the fourth film, which is called Alex Wheatle. It's showing on BBC iPlayer now, directed and written by Steve McQueen, co-written with Alistair Siddons. Uh, it stars Shehi Cole as Alex, uh, Robbie G as Simeon and Jonathan Jules as Dennis. And it is the true story behind the award-winning writer Alex Wheatle from a young boy through to his early adult years. So we... We see Alex at the beginning getting thrown into prison for uh, rioting, I think, during the 1981 Brixton riots. Then we we track back to see where his pain, his anger and torture kind of comes from. And he tells he kind of tells his life story to the person that he's sharing a cell with, um, Simeon, 
who also kind of brings a lot of learning to him. He has a great speech about um, education, which I thought was just so poignant and relevant to today, which was just all about using education as a tool to empower yourself and to learn and to use that information to dismantle the kind of horrific, racist, prejudiced world that we live in. Use the the tools that you can and unlearn and learn again and it was it was like that was a really great moment I think so in Alex's past he grew up uh, mostly in foster care and in a child home uh, called Shirley Oaks it closed in 1982 and since then allegations emerged sort of in the late well in the sort of in 2014 allegations of abuse started to emerge and the Shirley Oaks Survivors Association was set up so between then and now uh, 1,760 people have described suffering sexual, physical and racial abuse whilst in the home and children were drugged, tortured and sexually assaulted during their time there. And we see some of that in in the film and it is, it's really hard to watch, uh, obviously, a child being subjected to such horrendous treatment. And I very much took it as he was ostracised more because the, of the fact that he was black. And we also sort of see... Alex's own journey of self-discovery you know when he first arrives in in Brixton he has a very posh RP Surrey accent and he you know says you know I might be black but I'm from Surrey and then he slowly kind of learns a bit more about his history and adopts a, a more a Jamaican uh, twanged accent um, in order to to fit in with his peers and and embrace his culture and heritage which from listening to um, Akala's book that was something that a lot of people in that in the Jamaican community in the UK and London specifically did. Um, he talks about that in his own book about sort of discovering his Jamaican heritage and a lot of him, him and his friends put like trying to relearn Jamaican accents in order to be more in touch with that that side of their heritage and their identity. And yeah, and you see his his passion for music once again. I think I mentioned in when we were talking about Red, White, and Blue. The whole way through this series, you can see Steve McQueen's sort of love and appreciation of, of music. And that's also here in this film because Alex is trying to set up a, a kind of DJ sound system. And yeah, so it all kind of culminates in the New Cross fire that happened in 1981, where a number of, of black youths were killed in a fire at a house party. And it was rumored at the time that well, the police said that the fire started from within, but a lot of people insisted that it was a racially motivated attack um, with bombs being cut, like petrol bombs being thrown in from the outside. And the police completely mishandled the investigation and, you know, no, no, no justice was served, along with a lot of other situations at the time, uh, including sort of mass unemployment and general racism by the police and the government. The Brixton riots happened in 1981. And this is where kind of Alex gets arrested so there's a lot in this what's been really great about this series is like the snapshots into people's lives I think it's very much this one was a bit more expansive I think red white and blue we touched upon was very much like a kind of small section in the life of John Boyega's character whereas this we see a much more kind of sprawling history of Alex Wheatle but very much his formative years you know from growing up in foster care being in prison discovering more about his identity and I think his time in prison and him meeting Simeon who introduced him to literature must have been the inspiration for him to become a writer himself because he is now um, an award-winning writer and he's written several novels 
so yeah it's very much a kind of introduction to Alex Wheatle and just another snapshot of the racial tensions in Britain and just how that kind of still echoes today and how these things haven't gone away like we're not out of these situations yet like you know things might have improved in some in some ways but but not in others and this really goes to show more of that and I think Steve McQueen is just such an artist in terms of the way he uses camera and and music and the, he pulls like some of the best performances out of people I think I've absolutely loved watching this series and I can't wait to see what the final film is it's been like such a great journey to to be on for me it was always about the music uprising there's an uprising there ain't no work and we have no shilling we can't take more of this suffering so we riot in a big star. We are the small X, sharpened to cut you down. Genesis Cinema has reopened, and what better way to support your local cinema than by taking advantage of their excellent membership deals? There are two tiers gold and silver. With your membership, you get unlimited access to screens one to three, no booking fees, plus discounts on food and drink. Gold members also get 50% off the luxury studio screens. Go to genesiscinema.co.uk and become a member today. So it's time to talk about some events that are coming up at Genesis and in collaboration with Truman's Brewery, you can get all Christmassy with the ultimate festive action flick. Join Genesis in December to watch Bruce Willis save the day while enjoying a free pint of beer or cider, all for £7.50. So obviously you know what Die Hard's about. Everybody knows what Die Hard's about. Bruce Willis plays John McClane, who is visiting his estranged wife and two daughters on Christmas Eve in LA. He joins her at a holiday party in the headquarters of her Japanese-owned business. Um, Well, sorry, the Japanese-owned business she works for. But the festivities are interrupted by a group of terrorists who take over the exclusive high-rise and everybody in it. Of course, just as it happens, McClane is hidden from view. So he is able to work out a way of taking down the terrorists bit by bit. So good. Yeah, I, re- I rewatched this recently, actually, this year. I at some point. love this movie. It really holds up. It really stands the test of time. It's still just so much fun. It's such a fun blockbuster. And in, in terms of the fact that, yes, it's OTT, but it doesn't go too over the top I that you lose all sense of realism. I think it also is aware of what it's doing like the ott is very much a kind of you're in on the joke that the film's in on the joke i don't think it's taking itself too seriously and it's got some amazing lines and also an incredible performance by alan rickman which i think was his first film brilliant it was yeah it was i think it was the one that really put him on the map in terms of film work yeah i just i love this movie and it's definitely a christmas movie it's set on christmas eve there's plenty of christmas songs in it yeah, I've always just really enjoyed this film and it's it is a really fun film to see at the cinema with an audience. I mean, obviously there'll be a socially distanced audience, but I've seen this this is usually my Christmas staple in December to go and see at the cinema because especially the Prince Charles, people whoop and cheer and as soon as Rallum McMahon comes on screen, everyone's whooping and hollering and then the famous lines that everyone loves and the famous scene with the uh, now I have a machine gun, ho ho ho. Everyone 
is just like we get yeah, cheering and it's just a fun experience to kind of be in that atmosphere so you can see die hard on tuesday the 15th of december at 8 40 p.m and you get a free pint of beer or cider with your seven pound 50 ticket so do go check it out come in ether this is barbo observatory are you receiving this is anyone out there This is Ether. Does any one copy? We're not receiving anything. That puts our last contact with Mission Control out. Three weeks. Why is it so quiet? That's Ether. It's a spaceship that we hoped would be our future. I have to warn them about the conditions on Earth. I don't know all the details. It started with a mistake. There is an antenna that's stronger than ours. We get to that antenna, they'll hear us. Take a deep breath. In our galaxy alone, there are billions of stars. At least one of them has the potential to support life. thinking a lot about time. Why one person lives a lifetime and another only gets a few years? We made a promise to our families. You want to be an explorer? Cut to my voice! But while you're doing all that, your own life is just slipping away. That's why I have to contact them. Oh, it's too late. On the 15th of December, there is a screening of Stanley Kubrick's seminal The Shining. It's going to be part of the cult classic collective, which, of course, Nick Walker of Rochester Kino is hosting and putting on. Um, The screening is going to be introduced by Nick, and it will be followed by a salon discussion where you'll have a chance to discuss the film with fellow fans and first-time viewers. If you don't know the story of The Shining, it's about Jack Torrance, played by Jack Nicholson, who becomes a winter caretaker at the isolated Overlook Hotel in Colorado. The aim is to sort of cure his writer's block. He settles in there along with his wife and his son, Danny, and Danny is played by psychic premonitions. As Jack's writing goes nowhere and Danny's visions become more disturbing, Jack discovers the hotel's dark secrets and begins to unravel into a homicidal maniac hellbent on terrorising his family. I am petrified of this film. I will never watch it again. No, no, no. But if you love horror and you love Stanley Kubrick and Stephen King, then obviously... Oh, actually, I don't know if this is necessarily for, necessarily for fans of Stephen King because Stephen King does not like this version of the book because it strays so far from it but it's obviously heralded as a, a Stanley Kubrick classic and a, a one of the horror classic adaptations of its time I just I can't watch it it's too scary I have to say I loved the recent sequel Doctor Sleep yeah I, I heard so good I watched it I watched it on the plane on the way to New York and I was really surprised they've done a great job with it and it's it's really disturbing I mean kind of on not on the same level as The Shining but it definitely has tones of it and it does get to you and Rebecca Ferguson kills it as the as the antagonist in that so yeah Check it out. It's on Sky now. I don't suppose they uh, told you anything in Denver about the tragedy we had up here during the winter of 1970? Well, a man named Charles Grady is the winter caretaker. 
And he came up here with his wife and two little girls, I think about eight and ten. From what I've been told, I mean, he seemed like a completely normal individual. But at some point during the winter, he must have suffered some kind of a complete mental breakdown. He ran amok and uh, killed his family with an axe. You can rest assured, Mr. Ullman, that's not going to happen with me. Yeah? Do you really want to go and live in that hotel for the winter? Sure I do. It'll be lots of fun. Yeah, I guess so. For some people, uh, solitude and isolation can of itself become a problem. Thanks for listening to the Genesis Podcast from Genesis Cinema, hosted by Nikki Alexandru and Matt Williams. Follow us at Genesis Podcast and at Genesis Cinema on Twitter and Instagram. Please rate, review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Music is Do You Want To Be Loved Like This? Instrumental by Kelly Lee. Recorded at home, socially distanced. Genesis.